The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Good morning, Harvest. Good to see you. Ready to get into God's Word? Ish. Yes. Ready to get into God's Word? Yes. All right, here at, <laughs> thanks. Uh, here at Harvest, uh, we have, as many of you know, we've established uh, four uh, pillars that kind of state the things that are most important to us, the things that we believe from God's Word are mandated uh, for the church. I don't want to go into all four of those, but uh, one of those relates to what we're talking about uh, here today from Luke's Gospel. It says this, this is the prayer pillar, uh, believing firmly in the power of prayer. Now, the thing about uh, believing is this, that um, it's not enough in belief to simply give assent to something, that I agree with it, but belief, for those of us who are the followers of Jesus Christ, includes practice. When I believe something, I actually do it. And if I don't do it, then really it follows, I don't really believe it. And so this pillar states, I, I believe firmly, we believe firmly in the power of prayer, but here's the challenge with it in just saying what we believe about belief. Belief equals practice. It's just so hard to pray. It's just so hard to, I'm looking for a few nodding heads right now. It's just so hard to pray. That it's such a challenge to us, it's a really tough discipline to really um, master, and evidently the very first followers of Jesus Christ, his disciples, felt the very same way because in Luke 11, after Jesus spends some time praying and they evidently hear it or watch him, he comes back and they, they ask him, oh, Lord, teach us to pray. They felt the same way. They knew it was tough, a difficult discipline to master. And we're going to spend some time uh, today looking at this little conversation that Jesus has with them about prayer, where he teaches them how to pray in order to ramp up our own understanding of prayer, to ramp up our commitment to prayer, to ramp up especially our practice of prayer. And we're going to frame it up around some common objections that we would have as to why we don't pray and so when it comes to prayer, you might say one of these objections. This might be coming out of your mouth, and Jesus has something to say about each one of those. And so um, why don't we pray together right now, then I'm going to read a few verses, and we'll start working through this together. All right, let's pray. Father, you are, how we would like to acknowledge, you are a good God. And uh, we're going to see again in your word today that you are a God, a Father, who desires to give good gifts to us, his children. And so thank you for that. Um, and we know that your word, among the many hundreds and thousands of gifts that you give to us, uh, your word is one of those gifts. And as we get it open today, I pray, God, that it would transform us into what you want us to be. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. When it comes to prayer, you might say, I feel pretty inadequate about it. That's a common objection. Let's look at the first uh, few verses here of Luke 11. 
Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. I feel pretty inadequate about it. That can be a very common objection. And, and I read this and I think it's, it's not so much that the disciples uh, didn't know how to pray. They did. I mean, they had some sense of what prayer was about just like we do. They had some sense of what the words needed to be and the right time of day and, and the, the practice of prayer as they would have practiced it as a good Jewish man. But I think what they really are going after here is having seen Jesus pray, they noticed that he prayed in an extraordinary way. He prayed in a way that they had never seen before. That shouldn't surprise us because that's pretty much something that describes everything about Jesus. Every time he did something, it caught people's attention because he did it in an extraordinary way. The way he cared for people was extraordinary. The way he taught people was extraordinary. The very manner of his life was extraordinary. And, and so it shouldn't be surprising to us that his prayer life also was extraordinary and caught people's eyes so that they went, you know what, teach us to pray. I mean, Jesus really, we could say this, he took prayer from, from the ritualistic to the conversational. We could say that Jesus took prayer from, from formal to heartfelt. We could say that Jesus took prayer from routine to relationship. It's extraordinary the way he prayed. And so the question they're really asking as they hear Jesus pray is not so much Lord teaches to pray, and you could add this little tag in, in the margin of your Bible if you want beside this verse, but not so much Lord teaches to pray, but Lord teaches to pray the way that you pray. Teach us to pray in that extraordinary way that you pray. And I think that's where we find ourselves. It isn't that we don't know how to pray. It isn't that we don't have the methodology but we want to pray the way Jesus prayed. We want to pray with the intimacy that he had with his father. We want to pray in a way, tell me if this isn't true, we want to pray in a way that brings the power of God down so that the answers come. That's the way we want to pray. And so we're saying to Jesus the same thing those original disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray the way that you pray. Because we might pray, but maybe we don't feel like we're being as effective in our prayer. Maybe we just don't know how to pray well. But the reality is, if we know how to talk to someone, if we know how to carry on a conversation, maybe as you came in today, you, you had a few conversations with people as you came through the doors. And if you know how to do that, then you know how to pray. And as Christ followers, we we want to pray in that conversational, less formal way. So really what it comes down to, if we know how to carry on a conversation with a, another human being, really what it comes down to is having the confidence to do that with God. Having the discipline to do it 
regularly, making it a regular practice of our lives. And so, having stated our inadequacy, what Jesus really says to this is just simply this, admit the struggle, admit that it's hard, admit that your prayer life isn't where you want it to be, admit that you want to learn more from Jesus, confess that you need to learn, that you don't have this nailed down, and that Jesus, through his word, here it is recorded right for us, in these pages, we have the answer to the question, how do we pray like Jesus prayed? And so could you say to him right now, and I mean to do this, I mean to have you do this, could you say to him right now, just in a whisper prayer, as we get into God's word, Lord, teach me to pray. Lord, teach me to pray as Jesus said. Take a moment just to say that, whisper that in a prayer to the Lord. Lord, teach me to pray as Jesus prayed. That's the first objection. And maybe you feel that this is genuinely you, this second one, I, okay, I'm committed to that and I get that it's a struggle, but I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. And I get that some of you might be at a loss for words and you can imagine, I'm rarely at a loss for words. It's okay, you can laugh at that. There have been a few times in my life where I was at a loss for words. Some of you have even witnessed those little miracles that have happened where Todd had nothing to say. I'm a bit of a conversationalist. I can I carry myself okay in a room. But I get that some of you maybe have a harder time coming up with things to say. And so Jesus says to us, I'm not going to leave you hanging here. I'm going to tell you like what you need to say when you pray to make this a powerful, meaningful, intimate time between you and God. And so he says, Jesus says to us, follow this pattern, and in verses two through four, which we just read, he gives us what we know as, look at those verses again, we know it as what? As the Lord's Prayer. Now, this is one version of it. There's a second version, if you want to just note in your Bibles, the second version of it. The one that's kind of closer to the words that we would have memorized from the Lord's Prayer is found in Matthew uh, chapter 6. And anyone who grew up like I did in a liturgical church, uh, you actually memorized this in a certain form that was established um, I would say the Anglican, uh, I have it right here, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, uh, 1928, kind of established language that was common to pretty much all liturgical churches in the English-speaking world. And, um, and I even remember, now when I was a kid in high school, um, and, and I'm going to date myself right now, and I'm going to date some of you, uh, but um, how many of you were in public high school when the Lord's Prayer was still being said as part of opening exercises. So still a lot of you. And uh, we just all dated ourselves right there, though. And uh, we would go to homeroom class in our public high school, and um, O Canada would be played through the PA, and then some uh, student uh, would say the Lord's Prayer over the PA. And um, it's hard to believe now where our society is today that that happened in any of our lifetimes because it seems like 100 years ago compared to where we are uh, today right now. But, um, but we had this thing memorized. And, um, and so this is the form. This is the, this is the form that most of us would know for the Lord's Prayer. And uh, let, me, let me just, why don't we just say it together? How, how about that? Let's just see if we can do it as well as the Anglicans would. All right, let's start. Our Father, 
Amen. So now the, the Protestants got all of that right. The Catholics dropped off uh, just a line before the end there, because we always throw that extra doxology on there that's not actually in the text. But, um, but that, was, that was pretty good. I thought that was pretty good. I thought Anglicans probably would have been pretty pleased with that. Uh, so, so that's good. But watch this version from 19 years ago. Uh, little, little Jordan Chorus from 19 years ago. He was two years old uh, saying the Lord's Prayer. Let's watch this. Say the Lord's Prayer now. Say your prayers. Okay, say your prayers. I can't see that. Our Father. Our heaven. Our heaven. Man, me. Our kingdom come. Our will be done. Our reign in heaven. There is a day. A daily bread. There is a daily trap glasses. There are those that are down the same steps. That's my new son-in-law. <laughs> now, that's, that's phenomenal. So, so a lot of us had it memorized, and, and if you, didn't, you need to, didn't need to look at the screen when, when we set it all together, and Jordan, obviously, at two, had been taught it, and I want to commend any parent, whoever teaches their children to memorize the Scripture, because that's a good, awesome, and biblical uh, thing to be doing as parents. But I, but I need to say this. When we memorize things, it's so easy to allow it to trip into a ritual. And that so often in, in and I don't mean to be super critical of liturgical churches because we have our own issues, but so often it's easy just to say something and not really to think about what we're saying and certainly not to have it internalized, not have it come from our hearts. So I said the words, but I said them in such a way that all it was was words that were coming out, but nothing really heartfelt about it. And I need you to hear this because in the text, what we're getting from Jesus, really to understand the purpose of the Lord's Prayer, that it is not to have us memorize and mimic it, but to embody its spirit and to emulate its pattern. That's what's so important about the Lord's Prayer. It's meant to be, I'm going to say this now, what Jesus is giving us are not words to be memorized and just recite it as a prayer but he's giving us an outline for prayer that's going to be filled in with our own words. And so really what's going on here is, is this is something that should be longer, for example, than what we see here. And we're not just gonna give ourselves a check mark when we say the Lord's Prayer, and that's our prayer time for the day. I said the Lord's Prayer. I got everything that Jesus said I needed to say. I said the exact words that he said that I should say. But no, it's an outline, and so there's going to be ebbs and flows to it, and, and, and I'm going to fill it out with my own words under each of the headings that we're going to look at in just a few moments, that, that, that it's going to be longer than what I have right here, and that sometimes I'm going to spend more time, for example, on the hallowed be your name part of it, where I'm, I'm worshiping God and revering Him and just, and just reflecting on the awesome God that we have. 
Other times, I'm going to be in a, in a time of greater need. And so, uh, give us this day our daily bread, which speaks to personal petitions and needs that I have. I might have to spend more time there because I feel like I'm being pressed in by life circumstances and there are some things that I need that I don't have. Or maybe I'm having some relational conflict with someone and really struggling with forgiveness issues. And when I get to that part where, where it's, um, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When I get to that part, that's going to be a bit of a struggle and I'm going to need to wrestle with God for a little while there. Listen, I'm just saying it's an outline and we're going to fill it in with our own words and it's going to be longer on some days than others and certain sections are going to be emphasized above others depending on where we're at at that particular moment that we're praying. And so we're using the pattern to pray our own prayers. And Jesus gives us really six, six categories, six elements to include in our prayers. And you can jot these down in your notes. Again, we're not going to get caught up in the exact words or the orders, but he starts with Father. That's not insignificant. That we have access personally to God. That this term of affection and endearment opens up a conversation with one who we know loves us, a God who loves us. And one commentary said this, that the Lord's Prayer, above all other prayers of all other religions all around the world, this is a distinctively Christian prayer because of the way it opens with Father. That we have such personal access to God, this is what makes it distinctive. And that's what these disciples really wanted. They wanted to have the kind of intimate conversation with God that Jesus was having with him. And so we're invited to pray in a personal way about personal needs to a very personal God. It all starts with calling him Father. Then it goes on to say, uh, hallowed be your name. Hallowed's not a word that we use uh, very much, but it, it's kind of the older word for uh, to be sanctified or to be set apart. It is uh, really to say that God is held in the highest esteem in our lives, the highest uh, reverence given to Him. It's it's him, and I want to just touch on this, and we'll talk about it more later, but you see, God's the one who makes this conversation possible, not us. And so he ought to be revered for that simple reason alone, that he's allowing us to actually talk to him. He made this conversation possible. Now, I want you to really understand this, so I, let's, let's talk about... Um, the best illustration I can come up with to help us understand this conversation that we're going to have with God in the sense that we need to revere him in this. So I think the most remarkable person of the last 100 years, the most remarkable human being of the last 100 years, I believe is Queen Elizabeth II. I just believe that. I, I just don't even know that there's a, a person that even comes close to her. Her lifetime has spanned the lifetime, I think, of pretty much every person in this room. She's now in her 90s. And only those who are in their 70s or up would even remember a time when we had a different sovereign over us. She's pretty much, her reign has spanned the lifetimes of most people in this room. And uh, you can tell already, hopefully you hear it in my voice, that I am an unashamed, 
unashamed, a royalist, an admirer of the queen. Now, if I, I can't even imagine this, if I were invited <laughs> to have an audience with Her Majesty the Queen, I know that before I ever got in to see her, I would have to meet with a protocol officer who would instruct me in the proper way to have an audience with Her Majesty. And I would hopefully follow that protocol to the letter. That I would be told that when I come into her presence, uh, that I'm uh, to bow appropriately as she comes to me, that I'm certainly not to offer my hand unless she offers hers. That I'm not actually supposed to speak to her unless I'm first spoken to by her. That I, I shouldn't turn my uh, back to her at all. I would refer to her only as her majesty, and nothing else. And so in, in a lot of ways, it would be awesome. I'd have to follow all of that. It would be so awesome to get the invitation to go and have an audience with the queen. But if I got that invitation, imagine though if it arrived in my mailbox and I read the invitation and I went, she knows who I am. She's invited me to go and see her. I can go to her house. Now, if I got that access, and then I just assumed some things about that access, that I could just kind of go and see her on my own terms. Just knock on the door of Buckingham Palace and make my way through the house. And, and then get to the room where she's hanging out and just kind of barge right in and flop on the couch and give her a fist pump and say, hey, what's shaking, Liz? <laughs> just because I got the invitation to have access to the queen doesn't mean that I can go in and see her on my own terms doesn't mean I can treat it casually. That would be disrespectful. See, it's awesome in every way that we've been invited to speak to God and meet with Him in prayer in His throne room. But don't think that you can come to Him on your own terms. Don't think that you can treat the relationship too casually. You're, in being, you're being invited into a throne room that is infinitely more awesome than that of Queen Elizabeth II. And she herself has testified that on the day when she is face to face with Jesus Christ, she will bow to him. She knows her place. And we ought to understand our place. Access to God does not mean license with regard to my relationship with God. We're praying, hallowed be your name. We're saying that we respect him with the highest respect, that we honor him with every facet of our lives. Father, hallowed be your name. Notice this next, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. This is a a dual plea to God for his will, uh, both in terms of your kingdom come right now. Things are messed up. People aren't following you. Things are sideways in my own life. 
God, I want your kingdom to come here and now. I want you to correct things that are wrong. I want your will to happen. But then it also has this kind of last days, end of the age kind of um, appeal to it as well. A longing for the last day when all things pertaining to sin and death will be brought to an end and the glories of Jesus Christ are going to be revealed. When Jesus himself First uh, Thessalonians said, First uh, Thessalonians uh, 4.16, when Jesus himself will descend through the clouds with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come. Bring this all to an end. Get us into your presence forever. And given recent global events and the growing uncertainty in our world, it really is hard to imagine that Jesus is going to wait much longer. I just get a sense that time is running down and the signs around us seem to be giving indication of that. Your kingdom come now and in the future. Your kingdom come. I want my life to be conformed to your will. And then fourth, a fourth part of this prayer, give us each day our daily bread. This is a petition to God to give us the things that we need. And he gives us the opportunity to talk to him about those things. Really, it's a prayer to give us what is needed to sustain us today. And at the top of the list here is daily bread. Give us what we need for today to survive. And in the ancient Near East, in the first century, that wasn't actually a guarantee that people had food in their house for the day that was right in front of them. And so this is really a hard prayer, a hard part of the prayer for us to even understand because I would wager a guess that in all of your pantries at home, they're full and you might have a second pantry down in the basement that has backup stuff and you have a refrigerator that's full and you have a freezer that's full. And if all of that is true, it's probably also true that you have access to a considerable amount of cash in your bank account that you could then just go down to any one of dozens of grocery stores in our city that are full of food and you can just get what you need. And so we, we have this sense of, God, give us this day our daily bread. And it's a bit kind of like, like I, got, I got probably got enough in my house to last a couple of months. It's hard for us to imagine this, but if we just think about the tenuous nature of our personal health, because I think this is more, it's about more than just food, but the tenuous nature of our personal health and how rapidly that can turn. And we think about how tenuous our economy is and, and making our livelihoods and how that can all fall apart fairly quickly then if we still have a supply and abundance of several months worth of food and lots of money in the bank, then at the very least, we would not be presumptuous about any of those things. And when we're praying for God to give us our daily bread, we would just remember what we already have and be grateful to him and not be presumptuous in thinking that it might always be there. And so this part of the prayer is really a caution and a stop for us to say, I'm so grateful for what I have. God, thank you for already supplying my daily bread and tomorrow's daily bread and the day after that. And help me not to be presumptuous about all of that. Then the fifth element of this prayer, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. 
Now, we ask, there's part of this that is this um, forgive us our sins. That's the request part. And then there's this assertion, this bold assertion that comes at the end of it saying that, you know, we're forgiving everybody that, that, that's offended us and hurt us. That's a statement of fact. I'm not holding any grudges. I have no bitterness or malice or anger toward anybody about any of the ways that they've hurt us. That's just stated as a matter of fact. Now, a couple of things that we need to say here. In going to Jesus to ask his forgiveness for our daily sins, we need to understand that when Jesus gave his life on the cross, shed his blood, when he died, prior to that, he said, it is finished. And so the work of Jesus Christ is completed. Which means that for you, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you trust in his death, burial, and resurrection for your salvation, when you've done that personally, that all of your sins, listen now, past, present, and future sins have all been forgiven by Jesus Christ. The sins that I have not yet committed, that I will commit next week or next month, are already covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because if they aren't, what that would mean is, we'd have to re-crucify him. That somehow, when he said it is finished, it wasn't. And it is. But God says, you know, I want to put this in this prayer for you. And when I'm teaching you to pray, I want you, because of your limited perspective on all of this, and because you've just sinned the sin... I want you to be able to process that, and so please understand, your sins are already forgiven and covered by the blood of Christ, but it's okay for you to come and say, hey, I recognize that is sin, and I realize that Jesus Christ did indeed give his life for me on the cross, and that his blood was sufficient to cover that sin that I just committed. God wants us to be able to work through that on a daily basis, but then notice the character or the spirit of what's going on here as we ask God to forgive us. There's an assumption, there's an assumption that we're forgiving everybody around us. And so the spirit of Christ in us is that we're just not gonna hold a grudge against anybody. We're not gonna hold bitterness in our hearts. There is no unforgiveness because to hold unforgiveness in our hearts is to deny that Jesus Christ has forgiven us and that we understand what that means. It's just not consistent with being in Christ. And notice one final thing here, that it's in the plural, forgive us our sins. And so often we're trying to make the application so personal and individual in the Scriptures, but Jesus intentionally uses the plural pronouns here because we understand that forgiveness is such a community thing and that what we're doing here is so affected by our ability to forgive one another. And I just so love what Pastor James McDonald has said so many times, there are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. There are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. You can imagine there's so much more we could say about all of that, but we have to move on here. Six, um, and lead us not into temptation. And this is really an honest request to have God keep us from anything that might lead us away from Him. Any temptation that might cause us to sin. This is really, if you want to just write something in your notes, this line of the prayer is really risk aversion. If you are a risk-averse person, you understand this. I just don't want to risk it. I don't want to think any thoughts 
that are going to go down the road uh, toward a, a distance from God. I, I don't want to do anything that's going to lead me from Him. I, I, I just want to be kept away from all of that. It's risk aversion. Lead us not into temptation. And the best example of this really in the scriptures is this, Luke twenty-two forty-two. Jesus is in the garden. It's the night he's going to be betrayed. And the next day he's going to give his life for us. And in the garden he's praying. And he, he's, he prays this lead us not into temptation type prayer, this risk aversion prayer when he says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup. He's talking about the suffering, this cup of suffering. Take it from me. He's really praying in his own words, lead me not into temptation. Well, Jesus says those six elements there, Jesus says, follow this pattern. Here's another objection. I give up on it too easily. I give up on prayer too easily. And I think we could all confess, except for those who are so gifted in this, uh, we could all confess to starting strong and being resolved and uh, having a pattern of prayer even for a few days and then seeing it kind of unravel and not getting back to it because when that happens a few times, we just end up being so discouraged by it that it's so difficult to get back to it. And, and we would say, well then, you know, I'm gonna get with somebody else and we're gonna hold each other accountable for this and we get somebody who we're really close to and I'll hold you accountable if you hold me accountable. But then we both end up tripping up and I don't ever ask the other person, my accountability partner, how their prayer life is because I don't want them to ask me. That happens in a lot of accountability relationships. I don't ask the other person the question because I don't wanna be asked the question. And so both end up wallowing in defeat and not having a prayer fired up in their life and we give up on it just too easily. And to that, Jesus says, persist, persist, persist in asking. Keep praying and don't stop for any reason. And when you trip and fall and it's not working, get back up and try again. And to make his point, he tells them this parable beginning in verse five now and he said to them, which of you as a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. There's a bit of an exaggeration here. Okay, a bit of hyperbole that Jesus is using to make his point. Jesus says, verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Because of his impudence, uh, the Bible says, uh, you can write this down, what Jesus is saying here is persistence pays off. Persistence uh, pays off. And synonyms for that word in verse 8, impudence, is not a word again that we use very often, but persistence is a, a, a pretty close a synonym for that. But I really like this one because there's a sense of this in impudence. It's... it's it's impertinence. You know that word? When someone who's impertinent, this is impertinence. And, and the reason why I like it is because there's a bit of a negative sense to the word itself. It carries the idea that we're overstepping when we come to ask, that we don't know our place, that we're a little too bold. 
And I like that because it perfectly describes exactly what we're doing when we come into the presence of God. We're being a little impertinent in coming to Him. How dare we go before a holy, all-knowing, perfect, all-powerful God? How dare we go to Him with anything? Who do we think we are? Why would we think that such a God would even, would even listen to us, care what we think, given our feebleness and our open rebellions against Him? Why would we think that we would get to speak with God? And yet He invites us to do it. He invites us to come and speak to him and to actually do so boldly. And the only reason why this is possible, I said we would come back to this thought, is not because of anything we've done. We're mistaken in coming if we think that it's by our own merits that somehow we've earned it to be able to go into the presence of God. But it really is on the merits of Jesus Christ that we get to be there. His sacrificial death, his resurrection to life is what satisfied God's wrath against our sin and reversed the curse of death, the very thing that kept us out of his presence. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were alienated from him. You were outside the throne room. You had no access to him. You were in rebellion against God. But by the blood of Christ, God's actually brought you near and invited you in. So be persistent. Be impertinent. And he assures us that he's going to respond. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. This is awesome. And I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Persistence, Jesus says, pays off. Ask, God's going to answer. Knock, he's going to open the door. Seek, you're going to find. Now, some uh, preachers twist this. They yank it right out of the context and slap the verse in front of people, and we begin to think then that we can ask for whatever we want and receive it, that we can seek whatever we want to seek and find it, that we can knock on any door we want and that door's going to be open to us. Those prosperity preachers are preaching nonsense and, and not consistent at all with the Word of God. See, because we've already prayed, the element of prayer that Jesus told us to say before the Lord was, your kingdom come. And in that, we've already aligned ourselves with God's will, God's ways, God's purposes, God's plan. 
Having said that, we're saying that whatever we ask for, whatever we receive is going to be consistent with your kingdom come. Whatever we seek, what we're going to find is consistent with your kingdom come. And whatever door we knock on, the one that opens, is going to be all about his kingdom coming. No matter, no matter the specific answer to our prayers, whether or not we get what we ask for, we will always receive what we need. We will always receive, I can say this with full confidence, we will always receive what God's will is for us. And we will always receive what is best for us. I love what Soren Kierkegaard has said here. The function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. That's the purpose of prayer. And so persist in your prayers, knowing that God has something awesome for you in that. Then finally, this objection, a common a sense is that I doubt God will answer or I doubt that God even hears me. So why should I bother? And again, this plays off of what we just talked about because we have prayed and not received the answer we wanted or not received an answer at all, we believe, that we've not seen anything happen. And so our objection is based on this very limited view of God's enormous and eternal plan. I'm praying about something. I'm not getting that thing. But could we admit right now that we do have this very limited view of things? I mean, currently, my view of the entire world is limited to what's happening inside this room. This is my view of the world currently. And I can't even, in these moments, interpret all the different things, all the input that I'm getting as I look around. And even when I look this way, I have no idea what's happening over here. My view is so limited. And locked inside these four walls, I even begin to think about it. This building, this city, is but a speck on our planet. My, my perspective is so limited so why would I be so presumptuous to think that when I don't get the answer right away or I don't get exactly what I wanted, that somehow God has failed me? Given the fact that he has such a better perspective on all of this, and Jesus says to all of that, trust me to care for you. Trust me to care for you. And he lays out some amazing assurances in verses 11 through 13. What father, again, there's some hyperbole here. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, a daddy, I'm hungry, is there anything to eat? Will instead of a fish give him a serpent? I mean, this is wicked. It's cruel that a father would do that. Or if he'd ask for an egg, is there anything to snack on? We'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil, and he's speaking to fathers, if you then are evil, what he's really just saying is, in contrast to a holy God, every human father is evil. In contrast to a holy God. 
But if you being sinful dads who don't get it right all the time, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, in other words, when they ask for fish, you're giving them fish, not a snake. When they ask for an egg, you're giving them an egg not a scorpion. You're going to do great things for your kids. You're going to try and bless them and you're going to love them. If you being evil know how to bless and love your own children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you dads know how to bless your kids, imagine how God knows how to bless your kids. Bless you. And what he says he's going to give us is the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the gift of himself. Not not necessarily the thing we ask for, but the gift of himself. And having, having him, if we just have God, it makes everything else make sense. Everything else in our life begins to fall into place because we have his presence and we have his wisdom to work through it and we have his care and we're assured of his love and his grace and mercy are being poured out in my life. And so you can, without any reservation, trust Jesus with whatever's going on in your life and talk to him about these things knowing he has your best interest at heart. And so your commitment to put the time and the energy into prayer Listen now, your commitment to put time and energy into prayer is directly affected by your willingness to trust that God hears you and will answer you in the best way possible. God hears you and answers you in the best way possible. And so you can trust him. But if you don't trust him, if you don't trust him, then why would you put the time and energy into it? And so trust him. Put yourself in his hands. No better time can be spent on this earth than in the presence of our heavenly Father pouring out our hearts to him in prayer. Nothing else compares to it. And so here in the text today of God's word, he's taught us how to do it. The application is simple. Let's go do it. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I would uh, pray uh, similar to the way I prayed last week that in the next six or seven days especially there would be such an increase of prayer among those who are part of our church family. And by that, God, I mean that there would be an increasing number of attempts to pray where there was no prayer before. That there would be an increasing time spent in prayer. That there would be increasing passion and boldness and increasing intimacy with you as we pray. God, I pray that our Our trust would increase having heard your word and knowing how much you love us and want to give us good things. God, I pray that our confidence would increase even when life isn't rolling out as we might want it to. God, I would pray that a week from now, 
we'd be testifying to each other about how amazing it was to spend time with you. Despite the circumstances swirling about us, that our prayer life went to a new level. Because God, we know you love us. We know we can trust you. We know you're our Father. And we know that you've given us the best gift of all, yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.